Hi friends, this is part two of Working for Freedom with Alex Gurevich. But the, but the point is that um, I, th- th- the other part of social work ethic is in our free time, what would we admire? What would be things that as a society we would tend to celebrate and admire? And I think it would be real human achievements. And, you know, the rise and grind, I, I suspect one reason why people admire the rise and grind mindset, aside from weird pathological reasons, is that it is a kind of disciplined commitment to, you know, actually making something of your life, organizing your life through a purpose and a principle, and not just being pulled around by whatever you happen to want to do in a given day. You know? yeah, I am. Um, I, I wondered also if it is also, you know, the same way that you say that post-work socialism is kind of an ideological artifact of the era of globalization. I also wondered if the uh-huh. rise and grind is an ideological artifact of a, um, you know, the the period of kind of stagnant growth and stagnant productivity gains that we've seen for so long. You know that uh-huh. um, Aaron Benenov has talked about. Right. So it's kind of compensation for the failure of social advancement. That you know, it's uh, the burden is placed on you know people to do you know to rise at a particular hour and to do all this kind of extreme um, stuff yeah. I- um, to compensate for the lack of social progress. Um, but I mean, that's a side, you know, that's a side yeah. note. Um, but, but I, I think there's, there's, to... a, there, there's a there's an element to this as well, which is something we've discussed in the past and actually came up in the discussion with Branko Milanovic, which Alex has already referenced, which is the idea that the, the wealthy are also now income rich, right? Which is uh, a reflection of the fact that the people with capital, owners of capital also work and often in many cases right. work very long hours and very much are, are the kind of, at the leading edge yeah. of this rise and grind mindset. And I wonder how that fits in. I mean, I, just as an aside, I think it ironically points out the failures uh, or, or a sort of hole in the logic that defenders of capitalism make that if no one was forced to work by, you know, economic compulsion or, you know, direct political compulsion, that no one would work, no one would choose to work. And um, I think that is disproved by their own behavior. You know, there's many capitalists who continue to work, even though they don't have to. But I think the other thing, I, I love Aaron's book. And one thing I like about it is that it really made me think more about how, in some sense, the real feature of contemporary capitalism is not the um, you know, industrial character of work, but the sense in which contemporary capitalism um, renders most elements of the working class superfluous. It can't. It has trouble finding useful employment for most people. It can't find a use for most people, and this then is why, in some sense, the work ethic has been shifted from, you know, the horny-handed sons of toil who work from eight a.m. to ten p.m., but the mid-level manager, who's got looking for some way to climb the corporate ladder or yeah, you know rocket yeah, into billionaire outer yeah. space. And so this is, I think, in a way, the most pernicious feature of contemporary capitalism then. And what I think is sort of what the post-work critique of the work ethic misses is that it's criticizing really the dying side of it. And that capitalism is contradictory, right? It overworks some class of people, and that's the truth and power of the critique of work ethic. But it renders a whole other segment of the working class superfluous, right? Even if they want to work, they can't. And they can find, and it, it's increasingly finding less and less use for it in this kind of low productivity, yeah. 
uh, environment, and especially so as we... industries become so automated. And that, to me, is in a way, I think, then the most critical point of entry is that we live in a society that cannot find a use for most people. And yeah. the best way to resist it then would be to reject attempts to buy off the class not made to work, because that is the most effective way of rationalizing this utterly yes. unacceptable state of affairs. So we need to we need to move on because we do want to talk about um, shared labor socialism. Um, yeah. Is there anything anything uh, either Alex uh, Hoakley or George did you want to bring in before we move on? Well, just that last bit, it was I found it especially compelling as an argument for what you know shared labor socialism would look in less developed societies where um, the redundancy of huge swathes of the population is far more striking and a far more reality than right. it is in 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 the global north where you know despite kind of shedding of of employment and so on it's still a large body of the people are formally employed which isn't the case in in much of the global south yeah although i think in a way i've increasingly come to think that that's only because so much of the incomes in the global north that there's a huge market for pointless services yeah there's the bullshit jobs. There's the bullshit jobs. There's, so there, it's that's that's the bullshit jobs. The bullshit jobs are just a backward reflection in the labor market of the superfluity of labor of unemployed and marginally employed labor in the rest of the world. So, uh, uh, George. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's just worth like drawing out some of the the points that you were making about the the political meaning of this or what this what the what post-work socialism if that is even i think it might i think it is a contradiction in terms as we were discussing it i was thinking yeah you, you know can you really have a socialism that's that is based on essentially trying to get rid of this central category um in in the socialist tradition and you know what would this actually mean for some of the those um <clears throat> thinkers that you talked about right at the beginning but i think the yeah that the idea that it's a symptom of working class defeat which i think has come through a lot more in the discussion than in in the article is absolutely absolutely central like the things are clearer now i think the position of post-work socialism politically is i think it is pretty um you can put it in the in the in the kind of uh lineage of the of bourgeois socialism as marx and engels already kind of critiqued in the communist manifesto because I, I mean your article made me think i should go back and and read that um we'll reread that section at the uh towards the end of the Commons manifesto and yeah the socialistic bourgeois want all the advantages of modern social conditions without the struggles and dangers necessarily resulting therefrom they desire the existing state of society minus its revolutionary and disintegrating elements they wish for a bourgeoisie without a proletariat this is what yeah. i think post-work socialism ends up doing yeah. I mean, is i would is i would yeah, you would George. disagree no, I wouldn't disagree. Agree. I would go further. I don't think it's even bourgeois. I mean, it strikes me as lumpen more than bourgeois. You know, on the one hand, it kind of the aim is to effectively buy off, a, you know, the kind of um, superfluous labor. And at the same time, it seems to me like it's very, you know, it expresses, I mean, I kind of made this argument somewhat in my book, Lenin Lives, a few years back, but it, it expresses the kind of, um, you know, the, it's a, uh, the ideological vision of the postgraduate class kind of writ large, yeah. you know, so the idea yeah. of leisure as something which is kind of, you know, not, you know, it's kind of hanging around, going to seminars, 
deciding who they're going to cancel, banging around on your laptop in a kind of Starbucks. It's that kind of um, mm -hmm. vision of what um, of what post-work socialism is. It's um, you know, and that seems to me like it's consistent with the with the UBI idea, but also with the idea of being free from any sense of taking responsibility for um, collective need, as you as you said. Yeah. Um, but yeah. we need to we need to move on. So um, you you come in place of post work socialism. You advocate towards the end of the piece, so it's kind of underdeveloped. Is for what you call shared labor socialism. And you know when I kind of came to the subtitle in the piece, you know this brought to mind you know kind of what I understood that it might involve is say driving out the hordes of the PMC into the fields to make them work and do <laughs> productive labor for a change. Yeah. But I guess this isn't actually what you had in mind. So ex Phil, you explain. Phil was Phil was <laughs> horrified by the argument. He's like, "Oh, I might have to get my hands dirty." And he like he was like, "I'm going to have yeah. to take Alex up on this." Yeah. See, I, no, no, no. I, so I think is, I think Phil wants change. everyone to be driven <laughs> into the fields, means. except for him. Right. No, all no, not at all. In the field, just the PMC, just the PMC. That includes. So, you were a part. So I, I got some bad news for you, Phil. I got some really bad news for you. Uh, if you have you have you held your degree up in a mirror lately? Uh, oh, uh, uh, no, let me go find it. I'm sure there's a certificate somewhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, it's a very good degree. Tell us, tell yes. us what it should labor says. Says the guy from the beating heart of PMC London. Uh, <laughs> the uh, the no, it, I mean it is that it's uh, it's true that I didn't lay out the full view. I'm hoping to write more um, to to say what I mean, but um, the the point of the piece was first just to say how would we have to think generally about work to imagine this is possible at all, and I think one is we couldn't be a critic of the work ethic if we really want a free society, then we have to imagine why would it be that people would do the necessary labor freely, and a shared labor society is a society in which. If we're not going to force people through economic compulsion to do the necessary labor, so if we're not going to withhold benefits from people, then it's got to be that people do it freely because we have all been socialized into doing our share of what has to be done. But that still raises some difficult institutional questions about who's going to do that necessary labor and what conditions. You know, some things, there are going to be aspects of some of the worst jobs that I can't imagine in the near future, anyhow, could ever really be automated. Even in things like mining and agriculture and cleaning and janitorial services and cooking, food preparation, there's a lot I am sure that machines could do, but not all of it. And so that kind of thing is going to have to be shared. So I, I, I see why you what thought do you mean, that, though, You know, but no, but I mean, what, you know, well, yeah. no, I mean, I was joking. I suppose my deeper concern is um the question of i mean i accept the point about the you know the need to kind of take responsibility for necessity yeah um but i don't you know to say it's you know on the one hand the shared labor socialism it can be rendered banal you know it's kind of yeah. uh, arguing about who does the dishes kind of you know or at the aggregate kind of macro level yeah. Yeah. At the kind of social level, it's not clear to me what it means, you know, because, it, I mean, ah. does everyone, you know, does everyone have to be like a nurse? You know, that's kind of nonsensical because obviously it requires kind of training no, and commitment and so on. Some of it requires so, specialization. Yeah. 
Yeah, indeed, right? So we can collectively decide, you know, this is how many nurses we want to kind of train and provide for, you know, so that is a kind of a collective decision. But that isn't really, it's, you know, so it's shared labor in the sense that we support the nurses and the nurses support us. Yeah. Um, but that, you know, I mean, again, that doesn't seem to me to be, uh, you know, particularly insightful. I mean, that's just essentially a democratized version of what we have already, right? I don't think that's quite true. Uh, I th- Well, it's in some sense, it's a democratized version of what we have already, because in some sense, the point is to do what we're already doing. <laughs> Right, we're already in a way, but only in a semi-conscious way, in a way that really allocates the burdens of this stuff wildly unequally. It's not true that everybody's forced to do their share, right? Wealthy people don't have to do any work. No, right? of course, yeah. And 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 they aren't expected to, and nobody thinks they ought to, and we no, haven't made it. What a public, and we, no, but I'm tr- what the I think the core of the the core of the of the point is, you know, there is plenty of shared labor. Well, sorry, there is plenty of necessary labor Absolutely. that cannot yeah. be meaningfully shared because it presupposes specialization or you know, oh, I see just what kind saying. of so or yeah. it's simply a case of it's so, you know in a complex society, just, it's impossible to, to do it that way. There's two different kinds of sharing though. Yeah. yeah. Okay. This is what so I was this, gonna this yeah. is what's yeah, it's just so, is it just the idea of sharing? You you don't want to so share. So some of it, it I mean there's two different senses. One is everybody does the same task. And the another is everybody does one of the tasks that has to be done, right? So, you know, there would probably be some class of this is why you sort of more institutional details. There would probably be some cla- kinds of activity that don't particularly require that much specialization, and which everybody would have to do some. Perhaps you do it at age eighteen instead of military service. You send out kids for two years, and they work in fields. You know, they do some of the trash collection, whatever it is, right? That stuff. And then after two years, when they've done their service. When we have tractors service. to work in fields. What's that? When we have tractors to work in fields. Uh, There's still stuff that you Lots of stuff needs to be picked right? by hand. There's no way of, you There's, know, automating There's that. just a huge amount. And yeah, to the degree that that stuff can be automated, then it can be automated away. I just, uh, the point is we have to have a sense of what it is that what the principles would be for deciding who's going to do the stuff machines can't do. And then for the stuff that's specialized, then you have um, someone's got to do something. Like I suspect some mining, which can't be automated completely, would have to be specialized because it'd be very dangerous for people to be casual miners, you know? Yeah, Uh, I think that's the trickiest. This is... This Sorry, is what me, I'm getting me... at. Like, well, okay. So, but let me let me just say it first because I've been trying to develop the point, and then you piggyback on it, Alex. But the point, I mean, what I'm trying to get at, right, is like it the kind of this idea of shared labor socialism seems to presuppose kind of a commune, right? A so commune? I mean, it seems well, a you know, in the sense of some kind of collective living with you know, kind of endless committee meetings. I mean, these are the connotations which are coming to my mind. Now, I mean, I yeah. presume you know they might not be fair. But I'd like you to kind of clarify how this idea fits with a, you know, with an industrialized society of tremendous kind of complexity and with a specialized division of labor. Because it seems to me that, you know, that it all it really means is collective decision making about the kinds of things that we want. And that might yeah. not be so far from what we have already. If it doesn't mean that, then it seems to me to presuppose an in, a very different kind of society. Like I say, a kind of a commune where, you know, everyone has to, you know, do like, um, you know, uh, I don't know, changing, you know, kind of raising kids for a bit and then washing the dishes for a bit. And that is not, you know, um, 
but even communes specialized labor. You have, you have, you know. No, I know. I mean, the, I know. you I'm have trying, the people who are doing all the child raising, no, right? I know, and then, I know. What I'm trying, what I'm trying to get at is how does it, you know, what does it mean to talk about shared labor in a society that presupposes such tremendous kind of diversity, complexity, right. um, and specialization? If it's to be a modern one. And Alex, you come in before Alex yeah. uh, Gorovich answers. Well, no, I mean, I guess it was pretty much along those same lines. And I think the tricky case, as you've already hinted at, is those areas which require specialization, but which count very much as drudgery, because you have the easy, you know, the kind of non-complex drudgery, you share that out, everybody does their share of trash, trash collection, that's, that's fine. Um, and then you have the interesting specialized stuff, which is, you know, being a scientist or whatever, and then that is depends on who wants to do it. And um, there's, they dedicate a section of their, at least their adult life, assuming that everyone would have a humanist, broad, wide ranging education up till 18. And then from there on, they would specialize, but you know, you, you have a lot of fulfillment from that social recognition and all the rest of the yeah. benefits that come from that um, non non monetary benefits. Um, but yeah, the, the stuff, which is drudgery and is specialized, that's a, uh, that's a, that's a tricky one. No, but even, made... even trash, even trash collection. You I would, ha I would so happily that... contribute to trash, my out one hour of trash collection a week that I do as part of my contribution to yeah. society. I know, but my, yeah, but it doesn't seem to me that it would be more efficient, right? To have everyone, literally everyone do one hour of trash collection, right? But so that's if not a good anything... enough argument, yeah. Well, I'm not Efficiency sure that it is not right? an absolute. In some cases, no, it's we would not an accept, absolute, but it seems we would to me like it would require in such it would require such kind of levels of deforming, um, aggregate kind of uh, welfare or kind of um, special, however you want to put it, that it just doesn't seem to me to be um, useful. I mean, beyond you know, beyond what is effectively done already. Say you know, kind of uh, you know, the kind of in a collective, um, you know, trash collection in the context of a collective, uh, you know, a kind of a building where you live with other people, right? Something like that. But like trash collection on an urban kind of scale, the idea that every citizen of a large city engages in, you know, kind of trash collection at that level seems to me to be pointless. So um, what I'm trying to get at is it seems to me like the shared labor is already, in fact, the division of labor that we have. Right. It's about kind of making changes to it in a way that make the choice kind of recognized and conscious. So it's elevating to consciousness what is already implicit in the division of labor and obviously kind of, you know, changing property relations and working practices and decision making in a particular direction. But it doesn't seem to me to require drastic transformation to a complex division of labor that you already have in industrialized societies. I, I think it's a so I think you're conf, I think I, I understand what you're saying, but I think you're just confusing the fact that there would be good arguments for having some division of labor versus it looking anything like the division of labor we have now. And I think that's for two reasons. One is you wouldn't have the division of labor we have now involves some people not be, having to do any labor while some people's whole lives doing oh, sure. a job that is routine in its entirety and whose life is just defined by doing that activity. So the point is a lot of the things we would share, including let's say trash collection would no longer be occupations. The activity of yeah. you would still, it wouldn't be that everybody would do it, but nobody, the, the number of people who would do it would do it for a small amount of time that it simply didn't define their life. Right. Yeah. So maybe only 20% of the adult population of a city 
does the, you know, four hours of trash collection a week they've got to do when they go down and report to the trash collection station. But that means there's nobody who's a trash collector. That's a different kind of, yeah, that's just a I different kind of vision of labor. That, yeah, I think right? that is, I mean, that's the important point, I guess, the distinction. Yeah, I mean, it changes the meaning of the work. Just to go back to the, the, the to post-work socialism again, and, you know, the, the difference between post-work socialism and shared labor socialism, I think there is a, you know, the, the change from work to labor, like work is a, um something which is externally imposed on you and you can you know you can come to collective democratic decisions about how to distribute the various necessities of of living in a society and then yeah people you take them on without them being the central external compulsion that drives your whole life and as alex said maybe even alex h you maybe even you sort of welcome this you you know you enjoy this it has a a meaning both because it's become suddenly pro-social and also because it is it's rational yeah. in the sense that you've yeah. you've collectively decided that this is where you're going to do it rather than it's arbitrary and this this person that person has to do all of this thing so um, i do and that changes the you know qualitatively changes that you'd imagine yeah. i think it just I think changed that's, the nature of the task right, right. it yeah. makes what's ha- what is merely necessary into something that's also free this is a duty yes that i have yes. a reason to yes. want to do now, yes, I right? think I don't just conversion... do it as a means to an end. It's like now this is something I should do for the sake of doing it because it's yeah. my share of what it takes to keep a society that has my freedom and everyone else's freedom as its aim. Yes, so um, I think that conversion process is the you know is the key part of it, as it were, um, the transformation from necessity to freedom. Yeah, um, is the you know that's the the crux of it. I think um, that reminds. So can take... I just say one thing about that, just very quickly, because yeah, you quickly, raised yeah. you asked about the work ethic. This is just to very quickly circle back is that the reason I disagree with the post-work critique of the work ethic is they think it's merely ideological. But what I think the capitalist work ethic is, is it takes this feature, which people get right, or, you know, to the degree that many people think everybody should work, right? That's like the standard work ethic, is that what it does is distort something that's real and true, which is that it's true that everybody should do their share. And if everybody did their share, then what's merely necessary would become partial expression of our freedom and solidarity. Um, so the capitalist work ethics distortion of something that's real and rational rather than being a pure imposition yeah. on people's consciousness. True. And that's what I think this point's partially about. There's a reason so, for everybody to want to do it. Yeah. So before we talk about kind of quiet quitting, the great resignation and how right. this connects, because I think, you know, um, uh, there's been, I mean, kind of live experimentation to some degree with some of these debates on UBI with um, right. during the lockdown. But before we will close on that, but before we do that, I just wanted to check in with my fellow podcasters whether Alex Alex uh, Gorovich's point has uh, persuaded you both to abandon your parasitic lives of, of uh, <laughs> PMC kind of quasi leisure and quasi work and actually get proper jobs. And have a proper work ethic. I might go. Yeah, I was thinking of forestry. Actually, I was thinking of kind of what work would would you know that needs doing that uh, I would find fulfillment in doing. And I thought you know forestry or something like that to chop the Amazon down as part of industrializing Brazil. I think that's a good idea. Chopping the Amazon down will not industrialize Brazil. Very much on the contrary, it's being chopped down because it's not industrialized. So um, you know, that's a good point. What about you, George? 
I mean, I think it's, you know, the um, post-work socialism is a is a bohemian dream, a bohemian vision, vision, which is not completely unappealing. I mean, there is a um you know a certain allure to, to that it's the podcast's you know, dream yeah. no, but it, it, yeah. it is especially yeah. alluring if, if you like to read for example and you think that's a valuable thing and maybe write as well that to be given the freedom to do that then that's you think well that's great you know now I, i'm not going to just be like dicking around getting drunk or you whatever can, i'm going to be like yeah. being productive but in an intellectual fashion that you know whatever you can pursue scholarly pursuits without becoming yourself as a, 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 a narrow scholar and just, so you know, have drink a lot of good coffee and um, do some <laughs> but good I think blogging. That's, but I think so it sounds like you've rationalized. Oh, there's yeah. a but though. The, Go on, tell us the but. And I think, it, you know, it is to return again to the, you know, to the political context that that, that dream seemed um, seemed more appealing when the, when the possibility of control, um, such as it was, such as it has been dangled in front of us in an illusory way in the last um six seven years or however very, long you're talking very obliquely george what, what the, illusion when i control? said the possibility of control i mean that we could we should take it back or that we should take it i'm talking about you got it brexit there is a difference right that you have the appeal of the bohemian lifestyle that's that's not negligible it's not zero but if you counterpose it to what would it look like to collectively make decisions and to or to you know we're still a long way away from doing this from organizing labor rationally that is much more alluring that suddenly seems like a bit more of an engaged and less passive way to interact with um with society and it brings back the, the centrality of the possibility of labor transforming society us engaging a collective project to transform external world and and humanize it i mean so that's putting quite a lot podcasters. on the shoulders I think you've world missed though, podcasters, which sounds quite appealing to be fair. I think you've missed the f- what the, the 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 demandingness of the shared labor socialist view. So because what counts as necessary is defined in relation to what we imagine uh, free people need to be free. And if it's society that's committed to people to developing and realizing their talents, so not just surviving, then even what counts as necessary is going to refer to quite an expansive understanding of what human beings need. So it isn't just picking up trash and growing food. It is, you know, creating a highly educated population with a comprehensive understanding of the possibilities of what it is human beings can do, right? So... Uh, that means not just like, you know, having all the good education that you need as a child, but then also investing in all kinds of resources for figuring out how to transform transit systems, create new space mm-hmm. programs, explore the oceans. So all the necessary labor, this is the other answer to what to the automation thing is, in some ways, I think necessary labor would expand. Because it includes all right. that le- all that labor necessary yeah. to create the resources that people will want to use with their free time. But that's right. the appeal. So the demandingness. About, I think that is, yeah, the demandingness is the appeal, the appeal because yeah, you, exactly. when you realize that your labor yeah. can transform right. society, when you realize that actually what you can do is not just um, clocking in and out and and surfing the web in but your PMC it. office job all day. This is a you know this presentment of freedom, and that is a you know is a good thing to have a more demanding. I mean, also constitutionally, I'm I, I was a young rise and grind type. Um, I have to confess. So I'm I'm I not don't think anyone you believes know, that, George. I would I would like to I think the listeners were with you, George, until you had to throw it all away. <laughs> I can show yeah. I can show everyone my the the uh, young the self help books for 
uh, young people, the seven successful, seven no, uh, habits of highly successful teams, and you. all that sort of thing. But, but, but there's you, a no, George. but I'm, I'm not. I think bohemianism. I would like to be cool enough to be able to, to to pull it off, but ultimately, I've just got too much Protestantism. I think. So my, I think, I mean, you know, this is a very alluring, and it's particularly, it's not what's I suppose what's alluring about it, Alex, is the way you describe it as kind of an ex, expanded necessary um, labor. Um, mm -hmm. what's alluring about it is um, that it is demanding without being austere, I suppose. Yeah. And that is kind yeah. of tremendously, that's a good way of it. you know, that's tremendously appealing in its own right. Um, I'm still kind of drawn by the vision that we could achieve this utopia by just enslaving the PMC. Um, but, you know, I can take, I, I accept that that's perhaps a weakness on my part. That I mean, is that just a, no a desire for submission, point. Phil, that you want to be enslaved? No, this is no, no, kind no. of going into weird territory. No. no, but what I wanted to say, actually, <laughs> in the political point is that what a dividing line politically, what you're proposing, uh, Alex, is, because that precisely that demanding nature of this, demanding without being austere, I also think that's a good way to put it would not be a very good sell for a lot of the people who um, I think are currently advocates of, you know, post-work socialism or left vision of a UBI, because this actually does yeah. place demands and it, and it really butts up against in a very head-on way uh, these ideas of being able to effectively drop out. Like, can we just, yeah. I think, cause I think there's a certain exhaustion that's communicated in the post-work idea, which is, can we just please all relax and have to stop yeah. doing stuff all the time? Because they're you know, exhausted by educating us about, you know, our personal pronouns and like, you know, kind of why we're racist and all that. And okay, we don't have to go to we don't have to caricature them. I, I mean, well, it's, it's, no, yes. I mean, but the exhaustion, you know, the exhaustion Phil's is exhausted. the exhaustion is connected to the kind of the outlook on life. I think. I mean, that's that's true. So I think that's true. I think there's an exhausted outlook on life. In that sense, it is an expression of a kind of political exhaustion. And this is the thing I was going to say is that. Um, I think and we need to move on after this point. So, if yeah, so I think answer. in the article, I think I drew out the sense in which this is demanding, but not austere, as you put it. But what I didn't say is that, you know, if we're really thinking of this as something that would be achieved, it is kind of difficult to imagine how the politics of struggle would aim at this kind of thing. You know, politics is also demanding, but austere, right? A, a mass political struggle is a struggle that forges a particular kind of human being who but knows how to cooperate, make politics, decisions together, submit to a common line. Politics is demanding and austere. I mean, I think that's the point, right? Well, it is and it isn't. I mean, I don't know that would we say that about it, perhaps in some sense, although people really committed to it, feel that it's an enlargement of the self. Go read Vivian Gordnick's book about the, you know, the former party members who all say, despite having all left the Communist Party, it was when I was at my greatest and at my, you know, was realizing my most potential. You know, Jody Dean is not, I think, is onto something when she talks about the party and says it is discipline. Yeah, no, I know you don't like it, Phil. And it isn't, you know, not necessarily my style, but I think she's making a similar point when she, and which which we can't discount, which is that there is something self-expanding about being part of a collective struggle no, that no, you I submit don't, to. I, I don't. So it that. isn't. I suppose, no, just, I'm just challenging the austerity politics, point. You know, but I think politics is it doesn't, you know, like because it's this side of the society whose outline you've sketched for us, Alex. It seems to yeah. me that it is kind of, and it involves, um, you know, it it is austere in a way that I think this kind of vision of sure. um, of uh, enlarged 
collective flourishing is not. But anyway, I mean, I don't want to get hung up on it. So I imagine to, we need to finish. Just, yeah, just sorry, a quick point, a quick final point on on post work socialism before we have any kind of wrap up thoughts. One thing reading your article that's made me think was how like and it's a cruel thought and i don't know if it's actually true or not how much of this seems like a a dream of somebody looking at their boomer parents who are living off property wealth and thinking that's what i want to get to like that's the that's the that that's the situation that i want want to be in i don't know you don't want to reduce everything down to these sort of um sociological factoids but i think there's something in that that there is a um <laughs> there is a kind of relationship to you know that would be a good a good thing to do for for people who maybe feel uh, an attraction to to post work socialism, get the get the property wealth off their boomer parents. Well, I think many of the writers of it already have certain kinds of sinecures as it is. So, well, let's. So we wanted. I wanted to. We need to wrap up, but I do want to talk about um, about uh, the Great Resignation. So we've talked a bit about the kind of the um, contextual conditions in which um, post-work socialism has emerged um, or been resurrected and also um, how that might explain its appeal. And I mean, and George has just mentioned, you know, uh, possibly an example of that. But how does it, can? because it's so, you know, there were all these debates about UBI and then effectively UBI was rolled out to some degree, at least. Right. You know, I know it was different in the US, um, but Trump sent out the check to everyone personally signed by him. In the UK, we had the so-called furlough scheme where the state basically nationalized the entirety of the country's wage bill. Well, or most of the country's wage bill during um, the lockdown. So how does um, how does the experience of lockdown um, confirm or um, modify um, parts of your analysis, Alex? A and B, um, all the kind of the post-lockdown discussion about the great the quit it quiet quitting and the great resignation, if that tells us anything about how people relate to work and how much whatever what evidence can we squeeze from that yeah. to feed into this debate? Yes, good question. So I guess um, I had a, you know, I sort of was writing this essay while all this was going on and was, uh, I it sort of had the following thoughts. One is I became more convinced over the course of COVID that the left's position, what was good about the kind of futurist automate everything was the sense in which it looked like finally the left making a real demand on society and then realizing that that wasn't really the demand that society can't tolerate. The real demand our society should be that we should be making of society is that it finds something useful for everyone to do, which was precisely what it's not doing. Instead, it was paying everyone not to make any demand, to just consume. And um, sort of concealing the real basis of where those goods come from. And I think the reason the wealthy nations could do it afford it more than the rest was in part because they're produced, many of them are produced outside these countries. And so that the, the disjunction between the community of consumers and the community of producers has really been intensified by the kind of globalization of production and DLR, de and, alongside deindustrialization of the North. But it was the sense in which, why was it so natural? What is, you know, what was distinctive about the lockdowns wasn't just the authoritarianism, but the sense in which it's a society that doesn't ask anything of its people, you know? And that the most threatening thing, this is why I have some vague sympathies for the full employment thing too, is that, you know, compare it with the period when 
the working class was robustly challenging the state and the organization of capitalism when you actually got full employment schemes and had to go find something useful for them to do that was that's a much more severe and intense demand on a democratic state and so i sort of saw this as a kind of it, and it's um and from the flip side it means that political authorities have to ground their authority in a reason people have to do the labor so you know i think that we have states that whose democratic authority is so thin they would prefer to pay people to stay home than to make consistent labor demands on them they don't you know simply are not confident in their ability to demand those kinds of commitment to the you know they'd call it the public good um and they don't have that authority because the you know stuff you have all talked about a lot which is the thinness of political representation and the hollowing out of national democracy is some reason but when i saw those trump bucks go out and stuff i don't think it wasn't just sort of ironically it was a kind of anti you know it was populist but in a very deflated way because it wasn't look come and make heroic sacrifices for your nation you know if you think about you know the 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 polar opposite of that is like war and conscription right when we say don't just sacrifice some of your time for the community but sacrifice your life right nations that send their populations to war are nations that are trying to that either you know where the political class either believes in it or is trying to shore up its political authority by putting it to the test this was the opposite. It didn't put their authority to test at all and is why I kind of became more convinced that our vision should be demanding and that therefore a real problem with the post-work socialist view is precisely the sense in which it's a retreat from all of the most demanding parts of socialism, which is the need to make collective political decisions about what the needs are, why we value labor, finding a use for everybody, and therefore... Um, um, needing to generate the authority in some sense, maybe post-work socialism reflects the general lack of authority among the political class because it doesn't so, really imagine it could lead people yeah. and make this kind of claim on their time. So what about quiet quitting and the great resignation? I think it's just a backwards reflection then of the fact that it's a society that people don't see a point in working for. So right. I wonder it's it's apolitical, right? It's not a collect, it's not strikes, right? I mean, to me, the most, you know, Daniel Samora had a good piece on this, but which is it is a form of withdrawal. It's a protest against current labor conditions, right? It's saying we shouldn't have to do these jobs as they are. But unlike strikes, where in principle the whole point of a strike is it's a collective political act to try and transform the work so that it's worth doing. Quiet quitting is just a retreat from the reactivity. So it's not just individuated and apolitical, but it just represents that kind of retreat from the world of production when nobody is trying to figure out what would make it. And so in that sense, it's sort of just going to rationalize the present. Yeah. It's not so, radical in any way. So, I mean, I, I think that's that's entirely correct. Um, and it, But you've got the opposite side to that, which is, so, I mean, I, the quiet quitting is obviously a real thing amongst workers. It's not just kind of, uh, want to be want to be bohemians or whatever um but it it uh and and there are some attempts at organizing that somewhat collectively but most of what i can tell from it is just giving each other tips on how to quit and how to make do with less effectively the vision painted yeah. by nomadland 
Um, and but the the kind of polar opposite to that, which is also exists, is the sort of negative solidarity you have today, which is I'm suffering, I'm working, um, and where you're the state is proposing to give you some sort of benefit um, that that's bad because you can't have it good because I'm suffering. Therefore, everybody must suffer. Um, and, yeah, and it seems right. to me like what you're saying is actually, I mean, in some ways to double down on the latter rather than the former, which is not to say that we should embrace negative solidarity, but to make a sort of Zizekian point that the idea would be over-identification with the demands, the, the the kind of few demands that are still placed on us, Be because there is still the remnant of a work ethic, and in fact, I think it's actually still mm. reasonably strong, even though and and the and states do demand things of us. You know, let's all pull together. But of course, when people actually do it, they go, "No, hang on, step back. We didn't actually mm. mean that." Um, in the same way that you have this voting, everyone should come out and turn out and vote and participate. Oh wait, you voted too much. You voted the wrong way. Don't you know step right. back. Right. And so the, the right strategy politically, I think, today would be over identification. Say, yes, okay, so you want a stalling age, right? Let's all do let's all find work to do together. Oh, we should, you know, we should continue to work, otherwise you're not worth anything. Okay, then let's give us all meaningful work to do. And I think maybe that's I'm I'm thinking out loud here, maybe a better strategy than um the one hinted at by the uh, dropping out attitude, for lack of a better way to put it. Yeah. So this yeah. has been um, it's been fantastic, Alex. Thank you for uh, yeah. Thank you for taking the time to um, explain the piece. And you know it is uh, very um, to you know to once again commend it to our listeners. It's fantastically well put together. You know it's tremendously logical and I think compelling in the argument that it makes, as well as at the same time providing these kind of tremendous um, insights into the way in which we think about the contemporary world of work. So um, thank you very much, Alex. Thanks for having me on, guys. This was a lot of fun. Tell us, what did you do with your Trump bucks? With my Trump bucks, um, I, I gave them away. I donated them to a local food bank. I did not spend them at all. Since I I, Cambridge, counts. I live in Cambridge, and it is um, Cambridge is like uh, that, um, that China Meville novel, The City in the City where it's two cities that live in the same geographic space. And so Cambridge is just like that. If you're sort of, if you're kind of wealthy professional, then you kind of, well, you, there's certain, you go on certain streets, you go to certain universities in Cambridge, whatever you live in certain neighborhoods, whatever. But then there's also like public housing that houses like, you know, kind of unemployed immigrants. So there's like extremely poor people, extremely wealthy. So you see like food lines, if you go down a certain street and that they're around the corner from multi-million dollar houses. So I thought this isn't, you know, I'll just donate it. Cool. Thanks for thanks for doing okay. the work, yeah. Alex. There you go. <laughs> Do the work. Just a hard, whew, the hardest day's work I've done in a while. That was what, two Did hours? You-